Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today, we're going to be discussing Buddhist chanting. And I'm actually going to be teaching you Buddhist chanting as a way to develop your life practice and help you get more benefit out of your meditation practice. Before we actually jump into learning the actual chants and applying them in our practice, let's just talk about kind of how Buddhist chanting came to be, kind of the historical path of Buddhist chanting, and then how we can actually use it to benefit our life practice today in modern times. Buddhist chanting kind of originated actually around the time of the Buddha during his lifetime. There's actually chanting that he actually did during his lifetime and that he taught. This was part of the way that people were taught to memorize the teachings. So the teachings that we have are in the Pali language. So the chanting that we were doing 2,500 years ago during the Buddha's lifetime was probably in Pali or perhaps a language even prior to Pali. But what we've got in modern day texts are the Pali chants. And this is what was used to memorize the teachings is learning how to actually chant them. And as a community, people would chant together over long periods of time. There's actually some temples even today that you can go to where ordained and household practitioners will chant for very long extended periods of time. And keep in mind that during the lifetime of the Buddha, people actually understood the words that they were chanting. Today, chanting in Pali most people don't understand what the actual Pali words were. But if we were to chant in English, there was the same equivalent of what they were chanting because they understood the language that they were chanting in. So chanting would have been a way for them to memorize the teachings and then share them for multiple generations to come. Well, we still do that in today's modern era. There's temples at the very least that will typically do about 30 minutes worth of chanting in the morning and the evening. And ordained practitioners as well as household practitioners will join together and actually chant. And they will all chant together very harmoniously. And it sounds actually quite beautiful to have 20, 50, 100, 300 people all chanting together in a very acoustic environment, which most of the temples have very good acoustics. And it really blends nicely and everybody's kind of chanting together and working together as one community. Well, this works out really well because in the Theravada tradition that we chant and that we practice, in the Theravada tradition, which is spread all throughout the world as we were talking 
in our last session. It's primarily hosted in South and Southeast Asia. However, it's been spread all throughout the world. So in this tradition of teachings, the Theravada tradition, the teachings of the elders, we all chant in this Pali language. So by learning chanting with me today and practicing that on your own, you will be able to join any Theravada community, whether it's in Thailand, Sri Lanka, Laos, Miramar, Cambodia, India, or any place around the world that is practicing the Theravada teachings, even in places where you might live that there's Theravada temples because we all chant in this original source language of Pali. So it's really nice to learn the chanting because you can join in to various communities all over the world. You can just walk into any temple and everybody's pretty much chanting the same. Now, of course, because of impermanence, there's a little bit of a difference here and there. So you get a little bit of a different dialect if you chant with somebody from Sri Lanka versus someone in Thailand versus somewhere else. But generally, they're very, very similar and they can all chant together. The way that I chant and the way that I practice chanting is very much in the Thai tradition with the Thai dialect. And again, if you learn this chanting, you could join in with people from Sri Lanka or places that practice Theravada Buddhism in Vietnam or Laos or other places. And everybody would be able to chant right along with each other with just very slight differences, but you almost wouldn't hear it to the untrained eye. It would almost be non-existent. The other types of Buddhism that we talked about on Sunday, there's Theravada, of course, which is what we're practicing, the teachings of the elders, the tradition of Buddhism that feels that it's best to maintain the teachings as close to what the Buddha taught as possible. But then there's Mahayana and Vajrayana traditions as well. In these traditions, what they will typically do is they will chant in their local language. So Mahayana temple in China will typically chant in Chinese or a Mahayana temple in Vietnam will chant in Vietnamese. So if you're going into any of these other traditions, you would need to then learn the various local languages and local dialects to be able to kind of participate in the chanting with those various groups. But in the Theravada tradition, because we use Pali and the Pali Canon as the source and foundation of all the teachings, we also use it as the source for all of the chanting. And in this way, Theravada practitioners and teachers can actually join no matter which country, which temple, you can just slip right into the temple and actually be chanting right along with people that you've never actually even met before. So when you go to Sri Lanka, you don't have to learn the Sri Lankan language in order to chant at a Theravada temple. You can just chant in Pali. Or if you go to India, or if you go to Laos, or the UK, or America, or any of these places that have Theravada temples, you can just slip right in and right away start chanting in Pali. So that's one of the nice things about the chanting in the Pali tradition is that it's applicable to all places around the world that are chanting in the Pali language. Now today, we don't learn the teachings in Pali. Most people learn the teachings in their local language. So here in Thailand, if you were to learn the actual teachings about like the five precepts or the Four Noble Truths or the Eightfold Path or any of these things, it's going to be taught in the local language, which here in Thailand would be Thai. 
And if you were to learn the teachings in some other country, they're going to teach the actual teachings in local languages. But the chanting is still done in Pali. And the international language is English. During Gautama Buddha's lifetime, his goal and what he knew and what he understood is that the teachings would ultimately spread through the entire world. But he wasn't able to do that during his lifetime because of the differences in languages across the world and the differences in terms of travel. 2,500 years ago, it wasn't so easy to travel around the world as it is now. It's only now, today, that we can actually share the teachings in the international language of English and travel to all parts of the world and actually realize the original goal of Gautama Buddha where these teachings are helping the entire world to liberate the mind and attain this enlightened mental state where the mind's peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy permanently. So it's only now in modern time where all the conditions are perfect to be able to share the teachings worldwide, both from a language standpoint, but also from a travel standpoint, and not just physical travel, but also because of things like the internet, right? Like wherever you are now, you're really, really far away from me, most likely in the UK or America or India or some other place in the world that you're actually tuning in and listening to this and learning the teachings. Where in Gautama Buddha's lifetime, it was only the people in that small region of the world that were actually able to learn with him because of where we were in terms of our human evolution. And it's only today that we're able to share in the English language, we're able to physically travel the way that we are, and information is able to travel in terms of books and audiobooks and podcasts and broadcasts like this. So today, I teach in English. Much like the Buddha during his lifetime, he spoke in the common language that was available to all the people in his region of the world. Rather than speaking the royal language, which he grew up with, he actually spoke in the common language of his time, which was accessible to all the commoners. And during his life, he shared with people that it's okay to take his teachings and move them into another language, like English or like Thai or like Vietnamese in order to ensure that they could be applied in the various regions of the world. So that's why I choose to teach in English because I know that in terms of the worldwide community of Buddhist practitioners, if I speak in English and I teach you in English, then you have the best opportunity to have discussion with various community members, with other teachers, with people all over the world by learning these teachings in English. So there's certainly a group of people, a very small group of people who still learn and practice in the Pali language. But in doing so, there's a big hurdle that you have to get over. You first have to learn the Pali language. And not everybody agrees on what Pali words and what they mean in English. So there's this big, long learning process of having to learn Pali. And then once you learn Pali, now you have to learn the teachings. Then you have to apply the teachings in your life and see what results you get. Then you have to find other practitioners that understand the teachings in Pali so that you can discuss and communicate and share best practices, so to speak. So your community gets smaller and smaller and smaller by learning in Pali 
in the obstacles that you put in front of yourself becomes greater and greater and greater. And this is why the Buddha spoke in the common language of his time. So by us sharing the teachings in English and you learning in English, immediately you can understand the teachings and apply them to get results. There's not this big obstacle to learn a new language. So by learning in English, you can apply the teachings right away because you understand them and then you can see the results and you have a wide community of people in which to discuss the teachings and understand the teachings more deeply and learn to apply them better and better in your life. With that said, we still chant in Pali as a way to respect the original teachings and this knowledge that comes from the elders, right? The teachings of the elders, Theravada, right? The teachings of the elders. So we still respect this tradition of Pali and we understand that that's the source of where our teachings come from, but we apply effort and energy to learn the teachings in our local language whether it's Thai or Vietnamese or English, so that then our community broadens and we're able to apply the teachings and get results in a much more readily fashion, rather than having to go backwards for the entire world to learn Pali. That's not possible. We're not going to see that happen ever. So that's one of the reasons why I teach in English and provide all the teachings in English. Through chanting in Pali, it does kind of build in this respect and this gratitude and this appreciation for the elders, right? The people that captured these teachings and passed them down, which is a very healthy practice in terms of the mind to respect our elders. So by learning the Pali chanting, it's building in this respect and gratitude and appreciation for our elders. It's also helping you to develop memorization and concentration, which are two aspects of the path that are really important. As you develop the Eightfold Path on that last step, right concentration, it's important to build clarity of mind, focus, memorization, or we also call it as singleness of mind. And through learning chanting and practicing it daily, you can actually develop this clarity of mind, this concentration, and this memory, which is going to help you in other parts of your life. So by building this concentration, the singleness of mind, this memory through chanting, it's a practice, it's an exercise, it's a application where the mind is being trained to have this clarity, to have the singleness of mind, to have this memory, so that as you're kind of refining the mind and developing that ability, you can apply it in other places. It's kind of like if you grew up being a certain athlete and you were, say, a sprinter, and you sprint it all the time, but then you can apply it to the long jump, and you can apply it to the hurdles, and you can apply it to other activities. So the same thing with Buddhist chanting is by learning Buddhist chanting, developing the memory, developing concentration, developing that singleness of mind through learning and practicing chanting, you can apply it in other parts of your life, which are going to be even more and more beneficial. When you're actually chanting, it really helps to build awareness of mind or mindfulness, that seventh step, right? 
The seventh step is right mindfulness as part of the Eightfold Path. As you get ready to actually do your meditation, if you start with some chanting, you're starting to build awareness of mind, you're starting to build awareness of the breath, you're refining the memory, you're getting clarity of thought, you're building more and more singleness of mind so that you kind of ease the mind down into meditation. Because typically what will happen is when you decide at some point that it's time to meditate, your mind's either going to want to run or it's going to want to fight you, right? It's going to think of all these other things that are more important than meditating, right? Like go outside, go shopping, talk to your friends, get on social media. There's usually all these things that enter the mind of things that you feel might be better than meditating. And this is just kind of the mind kind of pulling itself away from these good, wholesome practices. But if you apply right effort, which is the sixth step of the Eightfold Path, right effort is to abandon unwholesome qualities and arise wholesome qualities in the mind, you can then use the chanting as a way to ease the mind into meditation and kind of get more benefit out of the meditation itself then you actually do the meditation so now that you've eased the mind down into meditation meditate for however long you choose get that extended benefit because you've kind of eased the mind into it then when you're done with meditation you can use chanting to kind of ease the mind back out rather than just kind of pop out of meditation you can just kind of ease it back out with the chanting and this is a wonderful way to enhance your meditation practice. One of the things that I also noticed as part of learning chanting when I first started learning about these teachings is it gave me an audible indication that my practice was improving. Because there's one thing that the human mind really likes to see is we really like to see progress, right? We don't like to be doing the same thing over and over and over again and not knowing whether we're actually progressing or not. Well, if you just meditate all the time and you've got lots of clutter in the mind and each time you meditate, you kind of feel like you're hitting a brick wall, which is what I was doing many, many months, many years in meditating. I just felt like I was always hitting a brick wall that I wasn't really getting any benefit. Well, the mind wanting progress and wanting to see progress, it can very easily give up. And it can see, you know, maybe two, three months, six months into it, you feel like your mind is still cluttered. You're not getting any benefit. You could easily just kind of give up. Well, if you institute chanting into your practice, hopefully you're getting benefit out of the actual meditation because like when I first started, I didn't have a teacher. So therefore I wasn't making progress. That's one of the whole reasons why I wasn't making progress is because I didn't have anybody to help me and teach me and guide me, right? So hopefully you're actually making progress in the first few weeks of your meditation. But even if you aren't, even if you're having trouble seeing progress in your meditation, if you learn chanting and you practice chanting, you will have this audible sound that you will see that will get better and better and better. Not only audible sound, but you're going to see that by practicing the chants over the course of a week or two weeks or three weeks, your memory of those chants are going to get better and better, where you're not going to actually need the chants from the actual book or some kind of like little cheat sheet like this, 
you're not going to need this anymore because you will have memorized the chance. And this is a great way for the mind to see this progress is that you're going to see the memory getting better and better. You're going to see the concentration and focus getting better and better, but you're also going to hear the audible sound. Even if it's just a little bit different each session, you're going to see that it gets better and better each time. When I first started chanting, you know, it was, of course, just like a child learning to chant. I didn't know how to chant and I had to really work at it for many, many years. And now I feel like I actually can chant quite nicely and it actually helps to calm the mind. When I chant and I hear the audible sound, it kind of soothes the mind and eases it down into meditation. So not only do you get all these benefits of memorization and concentration and singleness of mind, clarity of mind. Not only does it ease the mind into meditation, not only do you get more benefit out of meditation, not only do you see your progress in your practice, but then as you refine your chanting practice, you get this nice, beautiful sound that really helps to kind of soothe the mind and kind of ease it into meditation. And I do this for myself whenever I'm meditating before and after meditation, but I also do it when I teach classes or I teach retreats or I have you know students that I'm leading in meditation. I will always chant at the beginning and at the end pretty much. And it helps the students as well to kind of ease down into meditation. So you get all these benefits and at the same time, we're honoring and respecting the elders for this poly language that they've handed down. So we're no longer really using it in terms of householders to remember the teachings the way that they did in the past. You know, we've got books and podcasts and audiobooks and videos, things like this to kind of capture the teachings, bring them into the mind and memorize them and learn them and apply them in our daily life. But this chanting has kind of taken on a whole nother importance in our practice if we choose to use it. Not everybody who attains enlightenment is going to chant, right? It's not about everybody has to do this the same way. But if you choose to learn chanting and you choose to develop this practice, I think you will find that it becomes beneficial for you in your life and in your practice. But if you do it for two, three, four weeks or a couple of months or at some point in time you decide to set it aside that you're not interested in doing it, that's fine. You can still attain enlightenment without chanting. You don't need chanting in order to attain enlightenment. This is one of the things we talked about on Sunday when we talked about misunderstandings of Gautama Buddha's teachings where some people believe that chanting and mantras are what's actually changing the mind, that these words that you chant have some kind of special, mystical, magical, superstitious powers. Well, it's not that. That's not what's happening. It's not the mystical, magical, superstitious powers of the words themselves. The benefit from chanting is all the things that I've already talked about, right? You're building in this respect for the elders, you're creating concentration and memory, clarity of thought, singleness of mind. 
you are easing the mind into meditation, you're getting more benefit out of meditation, you're easing the mind out of meditation, you're applying right effort, acquiring right mindfulness, and you're developing right concentration. These are the last three steps of the Eightfold Path, which comprise the mental discipline of the Eightfold Path. This is where we're training the mind in the mental discipline through right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. So that's where the real benefit comes in in chanting. So if somebody ever shares with you that they have these you know, special words that only a few people in the world know, and if, if you just chant these special words, they're gonna miraculously change the mind. This is superstition. This is mystical, magical powers of chanting and mantra, which is belief. It's not actual truth. Where the real benefit is coming in is you're developing right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration through learning and practicing these chants. So that's what we're going to do today as part of our class in order to practice the chanting. But before we do, let me just pause here and see if we have any questions on anything that we've been discussing so far. We have a question from Gage on YouTube. He says, Hi, David. I have been practicing for about three years in the Theravada tradition. I used to chant and meditate almost every day, at least five or six times a week. Recently, I have gotten off path. I haven't meditated in months. Any advice to get motivated and back on the path? Yeah, you're doing it right now. You're attending a class to learn and practice. So you've got to apply right effort, right? There's, there's nothing that I can do that is going to incentivize you to come learn these good, wholesome teachings. There's got to be an innate dedication and commitment to learning and practicing these teachings. But the mind can get complacent, like what you've described. And when the mind gets complacent or sluggish, Gautama Buddha gave us teachings as part of the seven factors of enlightenment of what we should do to invigorate the mind and kind of bring it to motivate it in the way that you're asking. So the seven factors of enlightenment, there's mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity, okay? These seven factors of enlightenment are kind of to fine tune and refine, create more optimization in the mind and bring the mind more to the middle. These are the actual words of the Buddha. He says, when the mind is sluggish, which is what you're describing, right? The complacency of the mind. This is the time to practice the enlightenment factors of investigation, energy, and joy. And I'm going to explain what those three are. Okay. So whenever the mind's sluggish, which is what you're experiencing now, practice investigation, energy, and joy. When the mind's too excited, right? Because we can get to that point too. He says, practice tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. Okay. And then the other factor, the first factor, which is mindfulness. He says, the enlightenment factor of mindfulness, awareness of mind, is always useful, right? That's why it's part of the path. It's the seventh step on the Eightfold Path, awareness of mind. And the good news is, to a certain degree, you have awareness of mind because you're aware that you have this complacency and this sluggishness. 
So now you just need to understand what these three factors of investigation, energy, and joy are so that you can then eradicate this complacency, this sluggishness of mind. Investigation is keen investigation of the teachings, which means get yourself this book. I give it away for free online, or you can buy a printed copy if you would like a printed copy. Start investigating the teachings. Really dive into them. Really start to learn them. That's going to invigorate the mind. The more you learn about them, the more you understand them, the more you apply them in your life, it's going to create some invigoration in the mind. So you need to investigate the teachings. You need to have a, a regular practice of learning and applying the teachings. Here I have the group learning program where you can join on Wednesday or Sunday at 9 p.m. Thai time. And that will be one way for you to learn and investigate the teachings and start kind of invigorating the mind a bit. But you can be doing this on your own too through books and podcasts, through videos, the other resources that I share. And soon there's going to be an audiobook. The other factor here is energy. This is mental alertness or vigor. So you need to practice energy, right? There's nothing I can do to give you that. It has to come from inside. So you need to practice mental alertness and vigor, right? So when you're feeling kind of down and you don't really interested to do much, you've got to practice energy. You've got to have this mental alertness and vigor to pick up the teachings, start investigating them, start learning, you know, jump into your meditation practice, learn chanting, go to a, a meditation circle where there's going to be other people and you can build relationships and start to build community with other people. So you have to make that effort and apply energy in your practice. And then the next one here is joy. Joy associated with no object, so the practitioner is not attaining it by craving or desire. So you need to just experience joy just for the sake of joy. Some people call this spiritual rapture, okay? So it's just joy without any particular object of joy. It's just joyful just to be joyful. And of course, you're not going to have that right off the back, so you got to create that. This is the area of the seven factors of enlightenment that can really help you right now that as you feel the mind become complacent and sluggish, you can investigate the teachings, you can apply energy, this mental alertness and vigor, and you can train the mind to be joyful, not because of any one particular possession or event or situation, but just to be joyful, to be joyful, and then always practice awareness of mind. Okay, you can get more of the seven factors of enlightenment in chapter three of this book. So those are some suggestions for you. Start downloading the book, listening to the podcast, attending these classes. You've got to do the work. It's got to come from inside. Dedication and commitment from you. Thank you, David. We have no more questions at this time. So let's go into the actual chance and learning the chance. This will help you invigorate your practice because you're now investigating the teachings, okay? The first chant that is typically used at the beginning of events within the Theravada tradition, no matter where you go in the world, they were pretty much start the event with this chant. And this is also the chant 
if you are a child growing up in a Buddhist household, you will typically learn this one and maybe the next one as kind of the first chant. Okay, so when I first started learning chanting, I definitely saw myself as a baby, as a child. And I noticed that the Thai children would start out learning these chants. So that's where I started. This first one, it has three phrases. And each of the phrases relate to what we call the triple gem or the triple jewel. What the triple gem and the, or the triple jewel is, is it's the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. Okay, the Buddha, of course, is the self-awakened one who awakened at his own effort. He discovered these teachings through his self-awakening, and then he shared those teachings with others to become enlightened during his lifetime and afterwards. So whenever we talk about the triple gem, we need to have confidence in his enlightenment, right? If you're planning to walk the path to enlightenment and you had no confidence that the Buddha himself was actually enlightened, well, how could you ever attain enlightenment if you didn't even think he was enlightened, right? So you have to have that confidence that he was actually enlightened. And having confidence in your teacher is very important. So you need to have confidence in the Buddha. The second one is the Dhamma or his teachings. You need to have access to the teachings and respect for those teachings that were shared. Then you need to have access to the Sangha or the community of practitioners, ordained in household practitioners. So you have access to the Sangha by participating in these kinds of events. You have access to the Sangha. But if you think about somebody somewhere else in the world who isn't aware of the Buddha, who doesn't have access to the teachings or access to people who are part of the community of Buddhist practitioners, that person has very little, if any, ability to actually attain enlightenment because they don't have these three things. You need these three things in order to attain enlightenment. You need to have the triple gem or the triple jewel, which is confidence in the Buddha, access to the teachings, and access to the uh, community. So this first chant at the beginning of each event within a Theravada tradition is typically going to start with chanting this chant. The way it starts is using this Pali language here, and I'll just kind of chant it, and then I'll invite you guys to join afterwards. It starts like this. Arahang Sama Sam Hotom Hakawa Hotang Hakawanang Here at the end of the phrase, people will either raise their hands up to their forehead out of respect, or you might see people actually bow down to the floor as part of this practice. This is the Pali where the English here is the perfectly enlightened one is worthy and rightly self-awakened. I bow down before the awakened, perfectly enlightened one. Okay, this is a chant that people put together after the Buddha. The Buddha actually didn't require people to bow to him. It's just something that people did out of respect. The more they learned and practiced his teachings and saw that they were the truth, 
and their mind eradicated these discontent feelings, they had enormous respect and gratitude for him. So after he died, they put together a chant like this as a way to show respect to him. Okay, if you notice the way I've assembled this is there's two lines to make up one phrase and there's a breath in the middle there. It's kind of nice to kind of take a breath as you chant through this because for you to actually meditate and get real good benefit out of your meditation, you need to have awareness of the mind and awareness of breath. So here in the chanting, you actually can start becoming aware of the breath. So this first part of the phrase, here is where I will take a breath. And then either as you bow or you raise your hands up to your forehead, that's where you can be taking your breath to start the next phrase. Okay? The next phrase, Take a breath. Again, this is where you bow or raise your hands up to your forehead. This phrase is the Dhamma is well expounded by the perfectly enlightened one. I pay respect to the Dhamma. This is the teachings. So you're saying, okay, the perfectly enlightened one explained these teachings so well. I pay respect to these teachings. Okay. Then the last phrase. And then here again, you might raise your hands up to your forehead or bow up to you. Here, what this phrase is, is the Sangha, this is the community, the entire community of people who are practicing the teachings. Oftentimes, people think the Sangha is just the male ordained practitioners, but that's not entirely true. It actually encompasses the male and female ordained practitioners, as well as the household practitioners. So we're paying respect to all of these people. So here the translation is the Sangha of the perfectly enlightened one, right? The community of practitioners of the Buddha, disciples have practiced well. So the people who are learning these teachings and practicing them are practicing these good moral teachings. I pay respect to the Sangha. So you're paying respect to all the members of the community. So this first chant is going through the triple gem or the triple jewel, paying respect to the Buddha, his teachings, and the entire community of practitioners. Okay? But let's chant this together. Starting at the beginning, we'll go a little bit slow. Take a nice deep breath. Inhale. And now chant. Take a breath. 
And now either hands up to the forehead or bow. Nice deep breath. Savakato Mahakavatamo Breath Damang Namasami Bow Supatipano Mahakavato Savaka Sanko Breath Sanghang Namami And now we bow. Okay. Let's do that again, but I'm not going to cue the breath. I'm going to just let you do it naturally, kind of get into a natural rhythm here. Okay. So let's start from the beginning. Nice deep breath, and then we'll just go right on through. Arahang Samma Samhoto Mahakawa Potang Mahakawanang Apiwate Ami Savakato Mahakawata Tammo Damang Namasami Supatipano Mahakawato Savakasanko Sanghang Namami Alright, so there you can see it flows really nicely. And when you chant this with a large community of people, they will tend to pause at those same spots where I inserted the pauses and everybody will just kind of gradually take a little breath there. And there's always a leader who's kind of leading the chanting and everybody just kind of syncs up with the leader. And oftentimes what the leader will do is they will chant the first half of the first phrase by themselves. And then the community will come in on the middle of that first phrase. So it might be like this. Arahang Samma Samhoto Mahakawa And then all together. Potang Pakawanang Apiwatemi So there's like this big insurgence as everybody just kind of comes together on that one syllable. Sometimes different communities will chant it that way. So you might see that as you go around the world. You might see that the leader will kind of like start off kind of cluing everybody in. Okay, this is the chant I'm starting off with. He'll kind of do it on his own or her own. And then the whole community will come in on that one syllable and whoom, you feel the power and the harmony of everybody chanting together. Okay, any questions on the triple gem or the triple jewel? We have a question from Barzum on Facebook. What does it mean to have confidence in the Sangha or practitioners? 
I can develop confidence in the Buddha, the Dharma, by observing the growth happening through the teachings, the Dharma, and the teacher goes with Buddha. But what is the meaning? How and why do I develop a confidence in other practitioners? Uh, I didn't mention to develop confidence in other practitioners. The confidence is for the Buddha. And a lot of people, of course, they'll have confidence in their, their actual teacher, you know, the, the live teacher that you're actually learning with in this life. Because why would you ever learn from a teacher if you don't have confidence that this teacher has the ability to guide you on this path to enlightenment? For the community, you're developing and cultivating respect for the community, respect for all the people in the community. Not confidence, but respect. Thank you, David. We have no more questions this time. Okay, let's move on to the next chant. And you're going to see some similarities in terms of the phrases that are used. There's some similar words from the first chant. Now, in terms of the way that you actually progress in your learning, some people might choose to just learn this chant first because it's just one line. And this is what I did when I first learned, I just learned this one and I focused on it for a few weeks or a few months. And then when I got this one really good, I moved into the Arahang Samma Samputasa. Okay, so if you want to kind of progress slowly, you might want to just start with this one, learn this one really good, memorize it, get really good at it, and then move on to the next one. But if you want to kind of tackle it all at one time, there's no reason why you couldn't just learn all of them together at one time because they're all in the book in chapter 11 and you could just learn them all at one time if you want. But if you want to kind of isolate this and do kind of more of a slower growth, you might just start with this one. This is the one that pretty much when Thai children start to learn to talk, this is the first thing that they're going to start chanting, uh, you know, three, four years old. This is what they'll start chanting. So the way that this one goes is this one is respect to the Buddha, respect to Gautama Buddha. And it starts like this. And then you just repeat that three times, total of three. So you can see it's very short, just one line. And you can usually get this out with just one breath. You don't really necessarily have to take a breath in the middle. You can just chant it all the way through and then take a breath at the end and chant it a total of three times. The direct English translation here is respect to the perfectly enlightened one, the worthy one, the rightly self-awakened one, right? So that's what makes a Buddha a Buddha is that they are rightly self-awakened. They awaken the mind on their own. So here, let's chant this one together, starting with the Napmo. And we don't bow on this one. We just chant it three times all the way through. Okay? Take a nice deep breath. Napmo Pakawato Arahato 
นับมัทสัพพะกวะโตอาราโตสัมมาสัมพุตสะ So this is the same phrase repeated three times. If you need a little half breath or a breath in there, you can pause halfway through and get that little half breath. So where I go, right there, you might want to take a little half breath. Little half breath. Arahato sama samputasa. So this one is paying respect and gratitude to the Buddha, the perfectly enlightened one, the worthy one, the rightly self-awakened. And we do this three times. Just repeat it three times. And that's why this one is usually a little bit easier to remember and kind of get going within about a. A few days or a week or so, you can really focus on this one. And some of these syllables, some of these same words, show up in the previous chant. So if you learn this one first, you just kind of build upon it by learning the first one as well. Any questions on this one? We have no questions at the moment, David. Okay, so let's do this. Let's start with the first chant, and then we move into the second one and just let it flow. Okay, there's an actual third chant that I'm going to share with you as well, but let's just get in the habit of going from the first chant right into the second chant, and maybe Max can change the slide for the people in the virtual classroom, and I'll do the one for the people on social media, and the people on the podcast will have to be looking at their book or the little cheat sheet that uh, I provide as well. So here we go. Starting from the top, nice deep breath. Arahang sama samhoto makawa, potang makawanang apiwati mi. สวัสดีตัวมหากวัตตามุดามังนามสามิสุปเทปานุมหากวัตโตสวัสดีสังโฆ Sanghanamamimnapmodhasapakavato arahato sama samputasa napmodhasapakavato. Arahato sama samputasa 
นับมอทสภะกวโตหาระหโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะ And then this is where we'll start the third chant. Okay. Now let's go into the third chant. This third chant is also respect for Gautama Buddha, and it kind of expands upon part of what we've been sharing so far. This one, the English translation is, "He is the perfectly enlightened one, a worthy one, a rightly self-awakened one, consummate in knowledge in conduct." Essentially, saying that he's very wise. And his behavior and conduct is very good, very wholesome. One who has gone the good way, knower of the worlds. What knower of the worlds is? This is knower of the realms, the five realms: the hell, afflicted spirit, animal, human, and heavenly realms. So he's gone the good way. He's walked towards the light, and he knows these five realms. He's a knower of these worlds, unexcelled trainer of those who can be taught, teacher of human and divine beings, awakened and perfectly enlightened. What unexcelled trainer of those who can be taught is he's you know kind of the miraculous, well-respected trainer of those who choose to be taught, because if you remember back. To the chapter where we talked about moving the human consciousness from the animal consciousness into the human consciousness, that's what these teachings are actually doing. It's helping to evolve the mind from this animal consciousness into the human consciousness to be more human. And this is why once you reach the first or second stage of enlightenment, you're reborn back into the human. World, because you've now evolved the consciousness to be more human. So a Buddha, a self-awakened one, is going to be an unexcelled, a miraculous trainer of those who choose to be taught. Right? There's nothing that even a Buddha can do. There's nothing you can do or a Buddha can do to force somebody to become enlightened. You can't. Coerce somebody. You can't force them. You can't manipulate them into learning and practicing these teachings because there's effort to learn and practice and reflecting and implementing these teachings through the effort and energy. People have to have that innate dedication and commitment that we were talking about earlier. You have to have that innate dedication and commitment to learn and practice. So, an unexcelled trainer of those who can be taught or choose to be taught, the Buddha is not going out trying to coerce people or guilt people or shame people into practicing these teachings. A Buddha is pointing the way and sharing the guidance, and anyone who chooses to be taught, he can then. Teach them and help them to learn these teachings to become more human. And through the learning these practices, you can see the mind and the consciousness evolve from this animal consciousness to becoming more and more human, where the mind becomes peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy permanently. Right. So the Buddha is the unexcelled trainer of those who can be taught, or those who choose to be taught.
teacher of human and divine beings, right? It's only in the human realm and the heavenly realm that beings can actually attain enlightenment. In the lower realms, they can't actually attain enlightenment. In the hell realm, afflicted spirits, in animal realm, they don't have the ability based on the conditions of the consciousness and the conditions of that realm, they're not able to attain enlightenment. It's only in the human and heavenly realm that they can actually attain enlightenment. So we consider Gautama Buddha a Buddha to be a teacher of humans and divine beings because those are the ones that can actually attain enlightenment. Now, the divine beings, the heavenly beings, you might think that that's kind of potentially desirable, but it's actually not because in the heavenly realm, things are so pleasant that they tend to lack motivation to actually learn and practice the teaching. So oftentimes beings in the heavenly realm are actually reborn back into another realm in order to attain enlightenment. They have the ability to attain enlightenment in the heavenly realm, but they oftentimes lack motivation. They become very complacent because things are so pleasant there. It's only here in the human realm that we experience painful feelings, pleasant feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. We experience all three types of discontentedness. In the heavenly realm, they only experience pleasant feelings. So they still have discontentedness. They still have craving. This is the reason why they're being reborn because they still have craving, anger, and ignorance. They still have those three conditions of the mind that are keeping it in the cycle of rebirth, but they only experience pleasant feelings. And that's why they lack the motivation to oftentimes learn and practice the teachings. But here in the human realm, it's considered to be the perfect existence to attain enlightenment because you experience all three feelings, painful, pleasant, neither painful nor pleasant, and you have the consciousness, the ability to actually learn and practice the teachings. So you have the motivation and the consciousness to develop the mind, where in the heavenly realm, they have the ability they can cultivate the consciousness, but they oftentimes lack the motivation. In the animal realm, which is below us, they experience all three types of discontentedness, but they lack the ability to cultivate the consciousness. A dog can't sit down and read a book or sit in a Dhamma talk with a teacher and cultivate the consciousness through learning the teachings and applying them reflecting on them, seeing the results of them. You know, they can't see the natural law of gamma. They can't sit and train the mind through meditation, but they do experience all three types of discontent feelings. And then the afflicted spirits, they're mostly experiencing all painful feelings and they can't cultivate the consciousness in the same way. And then of course, in the hell realm, same thing, they're experiencing painful feelings and they don't have the ability to cultivate the consciousness. So it's only right here in this human realm that we have the motivation because of the three feelings and we have the ability to cultivate the consciousness. So the Buddha is the teacher of humans and divine beings. And then we finish that up with saying awakened and perfectly enlightened. Okay, so that's the translation here of this chant. 
this chant is a little bit more involved, it tends to be kind of like more of an intermediate chant. And then there's actually many chants way beyond this, which are very advanced uh, and beyond this. So let's take this and break it down, and you're going to see some of the same phrases from our previous chants. The way that this one starts is like this. Iti piso mahakawa arahang samasamoto. This is where I usually take a breath. We cha charanang samono sakatoro gawitu. Anu tero purisa dama sati satatawa manu sanang puto pakawati. And you kind of finish it off with a final bow at the end, typically. So these are the three chants that I do. And let me help you to learn this one better and better. The way that it starts out is with this first phrase. So let's do this one together, okay? Take a nice deep breath. Inhale. Iti piso makawa Breath. Arahang samasamhoto Breath. We cha charanang samhono. Breath. Sakatoro kawitu. Breath. Anu tero purisa. Dama sati satatawa manu sanang puto pakawati. You might have felt the natural breath there on that last phrase. There's kind of two points where I usually take a breath. It's Anu tero purisa. Little breath. Dama sati satatawa manu sanang. Little breath. Puto pakavati. So there's kind of two spots because it's a longer phrase. Okay? So let's chant this one through together in a nice, smooth fashion, starting from the top of Iti Piso. Nice deep breath. Iti Piso Mahakawa Arahang Samasamoto we cha charanang samhono sakatoro kawitu anu 
Bhagavati. Okay. Any questions on this third chant? We have no questions at the moment, David. Okay, so let's go back all the way to the beginning. And let's do the triple gem, which is the Arahang Sama Samputasa. Then we'll do the Natmo Tasa, which is the respect to the Buddha. Then we'll do the Itipiso, which is also respect to the Buddha. Okay, so starting from the top, take a nice deep breath here. Inhale. Arahang Samma Samhoto Mahakawa Potang Mahakawanang Apiwati Ami Savakato Mahakawata Dhammo Dhamang Namasami Supatipano Mahakavato Savakasangho Sanghang Namami Napmodhasapakavato Arahato Sama Samputasa Napmodhasapakavato Arahato Sama Samputasa Napmodhasapakavato Arahato Sama Samputasa Itipiso Makawa Arahang Sama Samoto Vichacharanang sammono Sakato roka vitu Anutero purisa Dhammasati satatava manusanang now from here, this is where you'll slip into your meditation. This is where you'll go into your breathing mindfulness meditation, and then perhaps your loving kindness meditation. And if you get in the habit of doing this at the beginning of each one of your meditation sessions, then you'll notice that the mind will ease down into the meditation and you'll get much more benefit out of the meditation itself.
And then when you're done, you're finished, you've decided to finish, we're not timing the meditation. We're not keeping track of the time because that doesn't matter. You just meditate for as long as you need to meditate for. Don't be attached to the time or attaining a certain time. Just meditate, get whatever benefit you need. And then when you come out, you finish with Arahang Samma all the way through Napmotasa Itipiso. And if you need to look at the book or a little cheat sheet, you're welcome to do that as you're learning these chants until you build up the memory and the concentration where you can actually memorize these. And what you'll notice is as you start memorizing these, you'll get more and more benefit because you won't be needing to pay attention to the paper or a book or something like this that you can just be in the moment and you can just really focus on the chanting itself, building your concentration, your memory, awareness of breath, awareness of mind, essentially that singleness of mind. So as you work your way away from the book in the little cheat sheet, you'll actually notice that you'll be able to develop singleness of mind more and more. So therefore, it'll benefit you more and more in the actual meditation. But you have to ramp up to that, right? You can't just get the benefit right away. You've got to apply effort and ramp your practice up to get to that point where then these chants become more and more beneficial for you. So it's going to take several weeks or months to really ramp this up and bring it into your practice if you choose. Okay, so any questions on chanting or anything else that we've been covering today or any other day in the group learning program? Do you have questions on chanting, on meditation, the three universal truths, the four noble truths, the eightfold path, on the three poisons, on gamma, on merit, on craving, anger, ignorance, on the animal consciousness, the human consciousness, anything at all that we've been covering in this group learning program at all. I have a question, David, on chanting. So we discussed earlier about how chanting helps us settle into meditation. And when we chant on the way out of meditation, what are the advantages of chanting on the way out of meditation? I feel that it helps to ease the mind out of meditation because once you start really developing the Eightfold Path and practicing it in daily life really well, and you're meditating consistently and regularly, and you start kind of working on these 10 fetters, these taints or this pollution of the mind, you're gonna eventually start getting into the jhanas. The four jhanas are part of the right concentration. They're deep meditative states that right now you might be slipping down into meditation, but over time, when you refine your practice, you're going to be getting deep, deep, deep into meditation. And the mind's going to be deep into these jhanas or these meditative states. And in order to come back out, it's kind of nice to ease the mind out rather than just try to pop right back out. So I feel that the chanting helps to kind of ease the mind out of that jhana as you've been cultivating these practices, you're going to notice that your meditation is going to get deeper and deeper and deeper. And it's nice to have that little transitionary period where the mind gradually moves out of meditation into, okay, now let me go about my day. 
And that's where the chanting comes in because you don't want to just run in the door, plop into meditation and then plop back out. That's not going to be the most beneficial. You want to kind of ease into meditation and ease back out. On the front side, Gautama Buddha called this setting up mindfulness in front of you. That's the language that he used in the text and in his teachings. Mindfulness is awareness of mind. So when he provides meditation instruction, essentially when he does guided meditation, he teaches his students, he says, okay, set up mindfulness in front of you. And he talks about setting up mindfulness before you actually meditate. So he talks about awareness of mind before meditation. He doesn't really talk about anything after meditation, but I've just noticed that for me, chanting after meditation really helps to ease the mind out of the jhanas. Thanks, David. That makes sense. So I can see we have James's hand is up. So I suggest we go over to you, James. I was just wondering if we were in a situation where um, it was necessary to be quiet, um, but we wanted to meditate, um, would it be fruitful to um, kind of go through the chants in our, um, in our mind rather than verbally? Would we still receive um, benefits, do you think? Yes, I, I agree for sure. I used to do this, you know, when I was taking trips from America to Thailand. It's a 24-hour flight. And in that 24-hour period, I still was interested in doing chanting and meditation. So in my seat in the airplane, I would still put my hands together. And in my mind, I would chant. And I would even mouth the chants. And then I would go into meditation on the plane. And I would do this you know, a couple of times during the 24-hour period. Or even just waiting in, for a flight somewhere, which is an experience where you can't really chant out loud because of other people around. Nowadays, there's a lot of airports that actually have prayer rooms to actually go and do these kind of spiritual practices. At least here in Thailand, I know they do. And I think other places around the world, they do. So some places are starting to set these kind of things up. But if there's not those kind of environments available to you, yeah you know, repeat it in your mind or repeat it in your voice. I used to even chant in the shower a lot, you know, because the acoustics in there are really good. So it helped me on my memory because in the shower, you can't be holding a book and chanting. So even just the Natmotasa in the shower and kind of hearing that harmony, it kind of invigorated, you know, that energy, that enlightenment factor of energy that we were talking about, invigorating the mind that's a good way to do it. So rather than just having this special period of time each day where you do chanting and meditation, you can carry it with you in the shower. If you're in the car, right? When I was practicing in America and people would cut me off sometimes in traffic, I'd be like, mm, may you be well, not more. That's all. <laughs> right? Or like you're sitting in traffic, right? So it kind of like, brings your mind back to your chanting and your meditation practice where you're establishing that nice, peaceful, calm, serene, content mind with joy in meditation. You can kind of bring it with you in the car, in an airport, in a shower, you know, walking down the street. Sometimes I used to walk in the park and each footstep, I would be like, and kind of walking while I'm chanting. And it would be kind of like late at night and nobody's around. 
So you can bring these things into other spaces. It doesn't have to be just reserved for your meditation only. And then this is a way to kind of really soak it into the mind and make it more part of your mind as you learn and develop these teachings and practice them. Thank you. Looking forward to trying some of those things out. Yeah. Tell us how it goes in the shower. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe record it, James. We'll play it for everybody. Live stream it out for everybody. (laughs) Get a nice road microphone. There's acoustics going. Yeah. Live stream from the car. Okay, we have a question from Sue on Facebook. Is it okay to say to myself in my mind, breathing in, breathing out, to keep my mind steady on the breath? Sometimes my mind is too busy at the beginning of meditation, and I find this helpful. Yeah, if it's helpful for you at the beginning of meditation, go ahead and do it, right? This is how the Buddha guided people in meditation. If you read the Pali text about how the Buddha actually taught meditation, That's the way he taught it is his guided meditations. He would talk about focusing on the breath, breathing in and breathing out. If you're breathing in short, know that you're breathing in short. If you're breathing out short, know that you're breathing out short. If you're breathing in long, know that you're breathing in long. If you're breathing out long, know that you're breathing out long. So he would use this as guidance. But you also want to get away from that at a certain point, right? So if it helps you to establish your meditation, if it helps you to set up mindfulness and establish and kind of root your meditation at the beginning and it's benefiting you, sure, go ahead. If there's anything benefiting you, go ahead. But what you definitely want to do is get to the point where you have some period of time during your meditation where you're not listening to any guidance from anybody. You're not trying to think about any particular thing you're not judging the thoughts you're not analyzing the thoughts you're not observing the thoughts you're not labeling the thoughts none of this stuff but once you get kind of rooted and into your meditation you should have some period of time where you're just sitting there or laying or standing or walking and you're just focused on the breath and only the breath As the thoughts rise, as the ideas or perceptions rise, you let them go. You cut them off. And this is training the mind to let go. Because the primary problem with the mind, with the unenlightened mind, is that the mind has a tendency to hold on. That craving, that longing, that strong eagerness, that craving for permanence. And that's what's causing the mind to be discontent. So if you're using at the beginning of your meditation, you know, some kind of coaching yourself to get you into meditation, that's fine. But then you want to let go of that at some point because you got to train the mind to let go, let go, let go. And by doing that, you know, you don't want to count. You don't want to, you know, uh, have any particular thoughts that you're labeling or judging or observing. You want to just let them go, let them go, just get them out of the mind cut them off. And by doing this, it becomes very beneficial that for however amount of time that you do this each day, maybe multiple times, you're training the mind to let go of the thoughts so that then in daily life, when something happens, someone cuts you off in traffic, for example, you can just let it go. 
because you've trained the mind really well in meditation to let go of all these thoughts, including the guidance that you get from yourself or other people. You let all that stuff go and you just focus on the breath so that then when someone cuts you off in traffic, no big deal, let it go. Somebody says something hostile, let it go. You see something that is displeasing to the eye, which then comes to the mind, you just let it go. You smell something that is displeasing to the senses, you just let it go. You taste something that isn't particularly a fond taste, you let it go. Somebody bumps into you while you're walking down the sidewalk, you just let it go. So all of these things in the unenlightened mind that's not had very well training, these things can be disruptive. It can cause problems. Someone bumps into you, the ego can flare up, and now it becomes an argument, it becomes a physical fight, it can even become murder in some cases, and people can end up in jail for the rest of their life just because of somebody simply bumped them on a sidewalk. Whereas if the mind was really well trained to let go, you can just let it go. It's no big deal. Okay, they just bumped me, so what? I just continue on my day. So this is how you want to get with breathing mindfulness meditation, where you might need some things initially to kind of get rooted into your meditation, but then let it all go and just train the mind to develop singleness of mind and let things go. And then over time, even that thing that you're using at the beginning, that little guidance that you use for yourself, you might decide to let that go at some point as your meditation practice becomes more and more established. You might be able to just slip right into meditation, get lots of benefit, and then ease the mind right out of meditation. And as you develop your practice, the mind will get better and better at this. We have a question from Manal. Teacher David, why exactly do you recommend not sitting to a timer? If you set a timer, what the mind's going to do, okay, let's say I set 30 minutes, right? What typically will happen is the mind's going to sit there and it's going to start craving the time. Is it 30 minutes yet? 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 And that becomes obsessive in your meditation right? And the mind is now craving or longing or having this strong eagerness for a particular time. So the whole goal of this practice is to eliminate craving, desire, attachment. So if you set a time, the mind will oftentimes long or have a strong eagerness for that time. The other thing, if it doesn't do that, the other thing that might happen is you might be deep in meditation, no longing, no craving, not even thinking about the time whatsoever. You're deep in meditation, getting all kinds of benefit, reaping all kinds of rewards. Eh, eh, eh. If I would have only just not set the alarm, you could have gotten so much more. So what setting the alarm is doing is it's setting you up to fail because you're either going to sit there and crave to get to 30 minutes or you're going to get to 30 minutes, but you could have actually gotten so much more. So what you're essentially doing is you're trying to determine the future. If you sit down in meditation and you set your time for 10 or 15 or 30 or an hour, you're trying to determine the future. The goal of this practice is to root the mind in the present moment 
and just be satisfied with what is. So if you set a timer, it's actually going to inhibit you. It's going to be an obstacle. Either your mind's going to long for that time or you could have gotten a lot more. So what you'll find is if you don't set an alarm, you'll actually get more benefit. Even if it's a 10 minute meditation or a 30 minute or a 20 minute or a 45 minute or an hour. If you asked me right now, David, how long did you meditate for this morning? I don't know. I have no clue. How long did you meditate last night? I have no clue. How about yesterday morning? I have no clue. I don't even look at the time after I meditate. I don't even look to see how long I meditated for. Because what is that information good for? Ask yourself, what is it good for? You're just going to compare yourself, right? Today I meditated 30 minutes. Yesterday I did 45. So should I have pride or ego about that? Or today I've meditated 30 minutes. Yesterday I only meditated uh, 10 minutes. So yesterday I was bad. I didn't do good. So now I feel guilty and shameful, right? So I'm going to compare it to myself. How is that benefiting the mind? Or am I going to use this time to compare it to somebody else? Hey, Max, how long did you meditate for? Only 30 minutes? Psh, I'm up to an hour, man. You're only 30 minutes? Come on, man. I'm up to an hour. What's wrong with you? Right? This is ego kicking in, right? The time, it doesn't matter. It doesn't actually produce anything wholesome. So why keep track of it, right? You're going to have to meditate an enormous amount of time in order to attain enlightenment. What you're going for in meditation is the results. We're looking for quality meditation, not quantity, not quantity. What a timer is doing, what an alarm is doing is measuring quantity of meditation. Quantity has nothing to do with quality and results. So by not timing yourself, you can focus on quality. You can focus on good quality results. You may get that in 10 minutes. You may get it in 20. You may get it in 40. You may get it in an hour. You may get it in three hours. So just focus on quality results, not quantity, and you'll get so much more benefit. I have a question, David, about the realms of existence and the three poisons. So in the past, I've heard the three lower realms described as pertaining to each of the three poisons. So the animal realm, for example, as pertaining to ignorance, hell realms as pertaining to anger and afflicted spirits as pertaining to craving. I suspect it's not as black and white as that. However, there does seem to be some truth in that. I was just interested to know what your thoughts are on that. I would say all three of these realms have all three poisons. They're all three, right? Because an animal has craving. They also have anger. They also have ignorance or unknowing of true reality, for sure. They have all three. And they also have the self. And they even have ego, too, right? Same thing in the afflicted spirits and same thing in hell. So I don't think it really helps to equate each realm with a particular poison because they have all three. Even here in the human realm, they have all three, right? I don't see how there would be any benefit in trying to equate one particular poison with one particular realm because they have all three. Thanks, David. Makes sense. Okay, I have one more question and it appears that we have no others at this time. 
So I'll end with, with this question. Um, something I've been pondering recently is this idea that comes about a lot in modern psychology, which is that humans have to struggle and that sometimes we feel like unless we're struggling in some way, then there's something wrong. Uh, and sometimes it feels like maybe we need a problem in order to feel that we're useful. And, and if there isn't a problem, sometimes we'll even create problems, if only in the mind. So my question is, do we really need to struggle or is that just another kind of attachment? We don't need to struggle, but we typically do because of these three poisons, the self and the ego. That's where life becomes very tough and very challenging and it can feel like we're carrying this heavy burden because we're walking through life with this craving, anger and ignorance, this self and this ego, and it becomes very burdensome carrying this through life. But it's in those struggles and in those challenges that we tend to use those as motivation to try to strive for something better. So if you can take those struggles and figure out what's the real wisdom that you need to be learning in those struggles so that those things don't repeat. Because as we know, these same struggles tend to keep repeating over and over again until we actually learn what it is that we need to learn. So there is going to be struggle for unenlightened beings. There is going to be struggle. It's, there's just no way around it. But in that struggle, since you're going through it and since you're experiencing it, learn as much as you can learn in that struggle and gain as much wisdom as you can learn. Oftentimes when we struggle, the tendency is to turn away and kind of run from the struggle. And in doing so, we don't really learn what it is we need to learn and those struggles end up repeating. So what I always advise is don't run from the struggle. If you're experiencing some kind of struggle, turn around, face the struggle, walk towards the struggle, roll up the sleeves, get admired in the struggle, and really reflect and gain insight into what is the real wisdom that you need to gain from this struggle so that you don't repeat it and it doesn't happen again. Because if you go through this struggle and you don't learn anything, it's kind of pointless to actually go through the actual struggle. But if you learn and you actually gain wisdom through the struggle, then it becomes beneficial to you because you have the wisdom to ensure that that doesn't happen for you in the future. So don't run from the struggle, you know, face it, turn around, walk towards it, get admired in the struggle, reflect on it, really gain as much wisdom as you can because it's that wisdom that's going to eradicate that ignorance or unknowing of true reality and help the mind become more and more enlightened. Gautama Buddha referred to one who attains enlightenment as laying down the burden, right? Laying down the stress. He used these words. So if carrying around this craving, anger, ignorance, the self and this ego is like carrying around a burden, what you're doing is you're laying down this burden by attaining more and more enlightenment. And how do you do that? How do you lay down the burden? Through wisdom, gaining more and more wisdom. So don't create struggles for yourself just for the sake of creating struggles. Learn the teachings, eradicate that ignorance or that unknowing of true reality so that you can work on the craving and anger, you know, fully practicing this Eightfold Path 
so that you can lay down this burden, but learning as much as you can through all the various struggles that you face. Each one of those struggles that you face is a learning opportunity, but more and more you'll gain the wisdom of how to ensure you don't encounter those struggles. Like for example, Max, if I can use our example that we were talking about before class about how you've had this challenge with the people above you in your flat, you know, kind of causing some noise. And now with the wisdom of that, the wisdom of that struggle of the people who are causing the noise, now that they've moved out, I gave you some guidance on how to kind of get ahead of that through the wisdom that you've learned in these teachings and through the wisdom of how it feels to live under someone who's a little bit loud, you can now use this wisdom to overcome and create better situation for yourself where it's more peaceful. And you do that through learning in the struggles and then applying these teachings for future situations. Thank you, David. I have one more question actually. Mm -hmm bit off piste which is that uh, i'm aware it's your birthday tomorrow <laughs> and uh i'm interested to know if you have any plans for it no i'm not thinking that far ahead <laughs> <laughs> i wondered <laughs> I, I don't even it's i don't even teaching. i don't even know what i'm going to do when i get up, when we're done teaching here i haven't wonderful uh, haven't yeah. even thought about it well uh yeah I, I just reminded you then, but uh, do you have plans for me? <laughs> <laughs> None yet. Are you are you coming uh, to Thailand to cook me dinner? <laughs> uh, I'd have to get my skates on. But I could probably just about make it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I guess it is my birthday tomorrow, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's my birthday tomorrow. Interesting. Yeah. So, yep, it's my well, birthday. Thanks a lot, David. Yep. Thank you. And uh, thank you all for learning. Thank you all for dedicating time and effort to learning. Work with these chants. Practice them. Uh, you're only going to find benefit in these chants if you practice. Just doing it today, if it was your first time or even your fifth time, you're not necessarily going to see the benefit until you practice it for the hundredth time or the two hundredth time, right? Have fun with it. If you mess up, laugh at yourself. If you are chanting it wrong, you know, joke with yourself. When I was first learning this, I was living in America and I had three Thai people living with me. It was my wife and my two in-laws that were living with me. And I would just go into this little room and chant. And I would just thought I was chanting by myself. And next thing I know over my shoulder, I hear my mother-in-law correcting me. Right. And it was great because she was telling me how to get the syllables right. And she was giving me some coaching. So leave your mind open to learning and practicing and having fun. And when I heard her first start coaching me, I kind of laughed and smiled and chuckled because, you know, she was really interested in making sure that I learned the chants really well. It was like a little child at the age of 30 or 33 or however old I was. She was there kind of coaching me just like a little child. So consider yourself a little child. It's kind of fun to be a little child again. It's kind of fun to, you know, be in the sandbox and play and dabble and experience new things. So get these chants out. Look in chapter 11. They're all right there for you. Use this podcast. Use the recordings that I've done. 
get this cheat sheet in our Facebook group. It's a one pager that you can print and laminate on each side and use it to be a child all over again and play in the sandbox and be fun and laugh at yourself when you get it wrong, but just stay dedicated to a consistent, committed practice of learning and progressing with the chance. And as you do so, the more and more you do this, they will become more, more and more beneficial to you in your practice. And they will help you to develop memorization, concentration, awareness of mind, and it will help you to ease the mind down into meditation and ease the mind back out of meditation. And it will help you to have this audible sound of hearing your practice continually improve. You'll hear an audible recognition of your chanting improving and you'll have this real calming sound that will come in and just kind of soothe the mind into actually meditating. And then you'll also be paying respect to the elders and having this appreciation and gratitude for this knowledge that has been handed down for so many centuries to the point where now it's finally reaching you in this life. So enjoy your chanting, enjoy your meditation, work with it, continue to train the mind. And then on Sunday at nine o'clock, we're gonna cover the frequently asked questions in the book. This is our last Sunday talk as part of this iteration of the group learning program. And then next Wednesday will be kind of like our last official meeting for this particular group learning program. Or if you're just starting the group learning program, it's kind of can be the beginning of the group learning program is next Wednesday on the 5th. Or if you want to consider the 9th the start, we can do it there as well. But either way, continue to be dedicated to learning and practicing the teachings, which can be choosing to learn chanting if you like. So until our next session, enjoy, be great, show loving kindness and compassion to all beings, including yourself. Continue to make good decisions to learn and practice these teachings. So until next time, sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.